0: Welcome to another in the series of Berlin's podcasts. My name's Bob Wiley. I'm an author with Berlin. And today, I'm interviewing a man I have admired for many, many years, a giant in financial journalism, in my view, Ray Perman, about his most recent book, which is entitled The Rise and Fall of the City of Money, A Financial History of Edinburgh. Ray, the title of the book, about a financial history of Edinburgh, I'm bound to say, had me thinking, well, in Glaswegian terms, maybe you'll need to hold me back. But when I read it, I found it fascinating. There's tales in here, uniting Bonnie Prince Charlie, Sir Walter Scott, how the Edinburgh bankers did in the Glasgow bankers, the catastrophe in modern times of each boss, RBS, Fred Goodwin. It is fascinating. How did we get here? Well,
1: Bob, actually, the book started with a walking tour. Some years ago, maybe six years ago now, the University of Edinburgh Business School asked me and a colleague of mine, a man called Russell Napier, if we would conduct walking tours for students at the business school around the city of Edinburgh. The idea was most of these students come from outside the city or maybe many of them, majority of them come from outside Britain and it was to give them a sense of the city in which they were living and the history of that city and how it was built up. So we started to do that and as we researched the walking tour I began to be very fascinated by who were the people that lived in these buildings in the old town for example. How did they function? Where, where did they get the money to build these things? And then when we come to the new town, how was that financed? How did the money come? So I started to research it. And as you say, I came across all these terrific stories. Bonnie Prince Charlie and the first recorded instance of money laundering, I think is a fascinating story. The downfall of Walter Scott, but also lovely stories like the two... Church of Scotland ministers who in the 1740s invented the first actuarial pension scheme. One of those, Men of the Cloth, was actually well known for his capacity to drink alcohol. These are terrific stories and those are the sort of stories I wanted to
0: tell in the book. Okay, let's ponder upon Prince Charlie a bit later, but the book starts with the Bank of Scotland its establishment as the first commercial bank in the UK it got parliamentary assent in 1695, according to the book. How important is the foundation of the Bank of Scotland in 1695 to Edinburgh's history? It's very important, Bob,
1: and it's an interesting story about how that came about because the uh, Bank of Scotland started 1695, but it was one year after the Bank of England founded in London in 1694. Now the interesting point about that was that the man who was the, um, the leader of the founders of the Bank of England was actually a Scotsman, William Paterson, in many ways a visionary, a man that could get things done, but also a bit devious, uh, a bit out for himself. And he pretty soon after founding the Bank of England, fell out with his fellow directors and stalked off in high dudgeon and came back to Scotland. But <laughs> his idea had been watched by Scottish merchants, particularly those working in London. They thought, well, a bank, you know, that that would really put Scotland on the map. It would help the Scottish economy to grow. And so they lobbied the Scottish Parliament. And bear in mind, this is before the Act of Union. So we have... Yep separate parliaments in Edinburgh and London, uh, and Scotland is a separate independent nation. So they lobbied the Scottish Parliament for legislation to enable them to set up a bank, and, and that was done. Bank of Scotland is launched. It is different from the Bank of England, because the Bank of England could only, by its charter, lend money to the government. It was a public bank. But in Scotland, Bank of Scotland was a commercial bank. It was going to lend money to landowners, to businessmen, to individuals, to develop the economy. Now, importantly, in 1707, when the the union of the two parliaments and Scotland joins England in the United Kingdom, Bank of Scotland manages to keep all the privileges that had been given before before the Act, it loses none of them. The Bank of England was very jealous of its monopoly in England and actively kept down English banks for centuries after the Act of Union, but it could not extend its writ into Scotland. So Scotland had its own bank, Bank Scotland, and very soon after that, 20 years after that, the Royal Bank came along and Scotland developed a multi-bank system very sophisticated banking system long before England, because despite the Act of Union, Scotland managed to keep a lot of the
0: privileges it had before that. The second big bank, the Royal Bank, which we know as RBS, was formed in 1728. Now, that's before the Jacobite Rebellion, and one of the chapters was titled Jacobites Defeated by Bankers. So that takes us to Bonnie Prince Charlie and cartloads of money being taken from the bank to Edinburgh Castle, as far as I can recall from reading the book. Tell me
1: about that. Well, there's a little bit of history to that. I mean, we had not only the Jacobite rising in 1745, but of course there was one in 1715 and there'd been one in 1697. So Jacobites were a constant threat to the British state. Bank of Scotland had been tarred with the brush of being Jacobite sympathisers. Two of their directors actually fought in the rising in 1715, and the secretary of the bank actually raised money on behalf of Jacobite prisoners kept in Edinburgh Castle. Uh, And this was one of the reasons that when the Bank of Scotland's monopoly over banking in Scotland, which had been given by the Scottish Parliament, came to an end, it did not have political friends who were able to extend that. And, And the people who set up Royal Bank of Scotland seized their opportunity and branded themselves as the Whig Bank, on the side of the government, as it were. So when we get to... 1745 Bank of Scotland which had been sort of out in the political wilderness by then did not want to find itself branded as a Jacobite bank again and so it was a bit afraid that if Bonnie Prince Charlie managed as he did he had some very um, big early successes he was taking cities like Perth for example like Stirling he was on the way to Edinburgh Bank of Scotland didn't want to find its treasury, which was mostly gold and silver and some banknotes by then, falling into the hands of the Jacobites. So it packed them up in carts, shipped them off to Edinburgh Castle um, and uh, put them into one of the cellars there. And Royal Bank very soon followed suit. So when Bonnie Prince Charlie finally did arrive in Edinburgh, he found the coffers of the banks were empty. And this was important to him because he needed cash, he needed money, ah. and started off badly, as we would say these days, undercapitalized. He took a very moral decision that he would not plunder and loot his way across Scotland. He would pay his way. But of course, that meant that he ran out of money very fast. He demanded tribute from Towns like Perth and Stirling got very little, but Edinburgh was the big prize, and he reckoned he was going to get big money when he got to Edinburgh, but he found the banks were empty.
0: You know, this idea, if one considers the deuce Edinburgh banker of popular repute, or the Bank of Scotland, the idea that in 1715 they fought in the first Jacobite rebellion and were, were seen to be Jacobites, not a lot of people know that, Ray. <laughs> and, and also, to continue the theme, not a lot of people know that our Sir Walter Scott of Ivanhoe, Rob Roy, the lady in the lake, and you name it, went bust. Yes, I would tell
1: the story of Walter Scott, um, partly because I think it's interesting, as you say, not Very a lot of people know that, but but also as an illustration of the sort of boom and bust that went on. know these are not modern phenomena. There were booms and economic busts throughout uh, the last 300 years of history. But in 1825, Walter Scott was the absolute height of his powers, you know, he was a, he was a lawyer by training, he was the sheriff of Selkirk in the Borders. Um, he was one of the principal clerks to the Court of Session in Edinburgh, He was a fabulously successful author. First of all, with these epic poems, like The Lady of the Lake and Marmion, and and then with the Waverley novels, although by 1825, he was still writing these under a pseudonym. He wasn't admitting to them, but they were phenomenally profitable for him. He got advances that you and I, Bob, would just (laughs) wet ourselves to get. Um, you know, we in, in,
0: in, money today as well.
1: Well, yes, <laughs> uh, I do tell the story that uh, Walter Scott got for uh, one of the Waverley novels twice in cash terms, what I got for my latest book. Um, <laughs> but if you translate that into modern money, it was something like half a million pounds in advance. This is before he's written a single word and he was making gigantic amounts of money. But unfortunately, he had the capacity to spend even more money. (laughs) He was a very generous man. He entertained lavishly both in his house in Edinburgh, in the new town which he had built himself, and in, of course, Abbotsford, this fairy castle that he built down in the borders. He kept adding wings to it, turrets here. And, of course, inside it had to be lavishly furnished with works of art and so on. And it was a money pit in which he poured huge sums of money. Not many people know now or knew then that he was also quite devious. He not only wanted the profits from writing these books, he wanted the profits from publishing it, so he set up a publishing company secretly in the name of one of his old school friends, John Ballantyne. Um, and transferred the publishing rights from his traditional publisher, Archibald Constable, into Ballantyne's so that he could get the publishing rights. That venture would have gone very well if he'd stuck to publishing only his own books. But unfortunately, he published a lot of other real turkeys too and (laughs) lost a huge amount of money on them. But he was also a secret partner in the printing company which printed his books and eventually became the owner, the total owner of this printing company. And he solicited print jobs without telling people that he was the owner of this company. Well, everything came to an end in 1826, the year after he reached the pinnacle of his fame, because the firm in London which represented Scott and was his London publisher went bust and it went bust not because of any publishing venture but because one of the partners had attempted to corner the market in hops, hops of all things. He reasoned that if he could buy enough hops he would force up the price and be able to sell this gigantic amount of hops that he bought a profit. So he did this on borrowed money. This is £30,000 in 1826 money, many millions of pounds now. He borrowed on the strength of his company accounts and he attempted to corner the market in hops. Unfortunately the hop harvest was pretty good that year uh, and so there was no shortage of hops and he found he couldn't sell them but there was also a banking collapse at the beginning of 1826, and the people who'd loaned him money called in the loans and he couldn't repay them. And so he found, this company found that it couldn't repay Scott's publishers, which were then Archibald Constable, his own venture had gone bust. And Constable couldn't repay the printers, John Ballantyne. But of course, Ballantyne's was owned by Walter Scott. And they were all private partnerships, they had unlimited liability. And one by one, they went bankrupt. Constable went bankrupt, Ballantyne went bankrupt. The last man standing was Scott. And Scott, to avoid the ignominy of bankruptcy, persuaded his creditors, mostly the banks, to set up a trust and to put all his assets into the trust. So he lost his house in Edinburgh, for example. He lost the copyrights of all his books. And he set himself, as he put it, to work with his right hand and work off the debt. And by the time he died, a few years later, the debt was halved. And it was finally fully paid off 100% from the remaining sales of his copyrights.
0: So he redeemed himself in the end, Bob. It's just a fascinating story, actually. And, and the parallels, well, I hesitate to raise subprime at this point in the discussion, but the, the, sort, <laughs> the sort of parallels of chain reaction from somebody trying to make a fortune out of beer is, um ah, it's quite striking. I, I don't want to dwell too much on, on history that's in the book, Ray, but I must, as a Glasswegian, ask you a particular question. Throughout the book, you talk about there being a series of banking wars. And I suppose in the book, these encompass the Royal Bank of Scotland fighting with the Bank of Scotland at certain periods in history. But you seem to suggest that there's a point where the Edinburgh mob, to quote a phrase, the Edinburgh mob get together, the Edinburgh bankers, and do in the Glasgow bankers. Is that true? It is true, and it is much,
1: as you described, for, for a long time, the Edinburgh bankers ignored Glasgow. But Glasgow was growing at a phenomenal rate in the 18th and early 19th century. Uh, the industrialisation was starting. Wealth was being created in Glasgow, a scale which had not been apparent in Edinburgh. And eventually, the Edinburgh bankers realized that they couldn't stay out of Glasgow any longer, that there was money to be made here, and they had to get in. But the Glaswegians were wary of dealing with these staid old Edinburgh bankers. And they wanted their own banks, not unnaturally. So they set up their own banks. The big trading houses in Glasgow set up the bank, the ship bank, known as the ship bank because it had a picture of a ship in full sail on its banknotes the Arms Bank, known as the Arms Bank, because it had the Glasgow Coat of Arms on its banknotes. And the Thistle Bank, for obvious reasons, there was a Thistle on the banknotes. And they started to do business. And first of all, the Edinburgh banks thought, well, well these are, you know, pathetic little banks, We can, um, we can just take them under our wing and use them. But they soon ra- realised that these were rivals, and they were going to take a lot of business. So they determined to drive them out of business and this is the way they did it it started as i suppose deviousness and ended in complete farce they hired a man called archibald trotter and they set him up in glasgow as a merchant they gave him some of money as a float and trotter's job was to buy up the banknotes of say the glasgow arms bank or the glasgow ship bank take them into the banking office and demand payment in gold and silver because the banknotes were payable on demand, the whatever the face value of the note. So uh, Trotter would appear at the ship bank and he would plonk down a very large sum of money, you know, maybe £1,000 worth of banknotes, and he would demand payment in silver. Now, the Glasgow banks had a very cunning way of getting around this, particular ploy. And so they would say, yes, certainly, sir, we'll pay you in silver. Here you are, sixpence, (laughs) shilling, (laughs) one and six, and the teller would slide these across the counter, and then he'd get to 17 pounds, 17 and or did I, uh, did I say 17 and six, or did I say, I've miscounted, I'll have to start again. Or he would drop some on the ground. Oh, I'm terribly sorry, I've miscounted or he would find one and say, this one looks like a counterfeit sixpence to me. I think I'd better go and get the opinion of my directors on this. So Trotter was kept waiting for hours and hours and sometimes days because before the banking day ended, they still hadn't got the amount. He got increasingly frustrated and his Lords and Masters in Edinburgh lost patience eventually and called time on it and admitted that the Glasgow banks had outwitted them and they were going
0: to survive. Is that the first foray? Because is it not the case, you know, after the Trotter escapade, the city of Glasgow Bank goes down the Swanee royally?
1: Yes, I'm talking about the late 18th century, early 19th century. But, uh, of course, the Glasgow banks did establish themselves and Glasgow grew as we know in the 19th century to be one of the largest cities in the world and one of the most prosperous cities in the world with huge industrial enterprises being founded and of course this led to bigger banks being founded the Western Bank of Glasgow, the Clydesdale Bank of course which is still with us, the Union Bank of Glasgow and the one you're referring to the city of Glasgow Bank. Now, the thing about the City of Glasgow Bank was it expanded extremely fast. And it expanded by lending money at a rate and with less security than was normal in banking. And the staid old Edinburgh bankers looked down their noses at this and thought that um, this was not good banking practice and it would end in tears. But the City of Glasgow Bank kept it up for about 20 odd years until it did end in tears. They appeared at the monthly meeting of the general managers of all the Scottish banks and they asked for an emergency loan. And the other bankers sent in a, an accountant to do an investigation. He decided that the whole thing was decidedly dodgy and so the banks refused to lend any money. City of Glasgow Bank had already been to the Bank of England, got the same answer. They'd been refused. And the following day, it had to close its doors. There was a a riot outside its offices. Its offices were in Ingram Street, um, still there. I think the headquarters, the main door of the bank is now the side entrance to Marks and Spencers. Uh, Um, But... uh, there was a riot as, as depositors tried to get their money out of the bank, but the, the bank's doors were closed. And a subsequent investigation of the affairs of the bank showed that it owed gigantic amounts of money. It had lent huge sums of money to four companies, four Glasgow companies. Ah, I remember that. Heavily involved in land speculation overseas, in Australia, in New Zealand, in America. In Canada. uh, And those companies could not repay the loans and so City of Glasgow Bank went bust. And it went bust. The investigation showed that it had been falsifying its accounts for years. Now, Bob, here's an interesting fact. The, the, The City of Glasgow Bank collapse was the biggest banking collapse in Britain until the financial collapse of 2008. But there was an important difference because the day after the report appeared, the report that showed how indebted the city of Glasgow Bank had been, the Lord Advocate, the Chief Law Officer in Scotland, sent in the police, and they arrested the entire board of directors, went to their homes, carted them off to Duke Street Prison, a pretty grim fortress of a prison in the east end of Glasgow. And those men stayed there through Christmas, New Year. They were lifted in October. And in the New Year, they were brought to Edinburgh into the Carlton Jail. And then they were tried in the High Court in Edinburgh. All except one of them were sent to prison. Now, contrast <laughs> that with what happened in 2008. How many bankers went to prison in 2008? Answer, none. Bankers go to prison shop. <laughs> it it <laughs> happens in other countries, Bob, but not here.
0: Was that a precedent then? Well,
1: obviously it wasn't a precedent because uh, it's not been acted on since. <laughs> well, um, right.
0: okay, in, a, right. in
1: our previous discussion about your book, you talked about the inaction on the part of regulators uh, in Carillion. But... There's a parallel to that with what happened after the banking collapse of 2008 and 2009, particularly the collapse of Bank of Scotland, which was then part of HBOS and Royal Bank, both of which went bust in very quick succession. So Scotland's two important banks, 300 years of banking history disappeared virtually within a few months in 2008. How many bankers have gone to prison? None. How many uh, have been censured for the false accounts? Uh, None. Feigned. Fred Goodwin lost part of his pension and the chief executive of uh, HBOS, James Crosby, gave up part of his pension and his knighthood. Fred Goodwin was stripped of his knighthood. But other than that, the sanctions have been notable by their lack. And just to take up a point that we made in our previous talk about your book, the auditors were found not to have done anything wrong. They didn't see these banking collapses coming, but that wasn't their fault because nobody
0: could have foresaw it.
1: Now, if you believe that, you'll believe anything.
0: I've always thought that the explanation for the auditors not being able to quite use their pencils and get to the right totals is that their eyes were always watering at the scale of what was going on. (laughs) Very possibly true. Anyway, let's get back from history. Glasgow Bank, I think you said to me in one discussion we had previously, that the city of Glasgow Bank lent too much money to too many people who couldn't pay it back. That ties the knot of history with the present day that you've referred to, HBOS, RBS and so on. Now, There's a quote from a journalist or a writer, author, James Grant, who I think is an American, on the front of your book. And he has this, the quotation you've written is, progress is cumulative in science and engineering, but cyclical in finance. Does that tie the knot of history? Is that why the quote's there? Yes, it is, because you can see the same
1: mistakes being made in finance time and time again throughout history. And each generation of bankers, particularly, but financial people, have to learn the lessons again. They never learn the lessons of history. And in, in my experience as a, a watcher of finance over 40-odd years, I've seen NatWest go bust three times, <laughs> essentially for the same reason every time, and and it's exactly as you put it, lending money to people who couldn't pay it back. And that's the essential banking skill, and banking today may be far more complicated than it was in the 18th and 19th centuries, but that essential skill of lending money to people who can eventually pay it back is what banking is all about, and I'm afraid on
0: various occasions we've lost sight of that. But why would you say then that they don't learn the lessons of history? Why did they get away with it in the sense of going bust because they're overlevered, they're breaking the laws of what they should have in their vaults to balance what they're lending out and all that sort of stuff. Why don't they learn the lessons of history? Well a previous book I wrote
1: was called Hubris and I think hubris you know, the overwhelming uh, arrogance and pride plays to a, us. a lot of part in this. I mean, the people running Royal Bank and HBOS up until the crash in 2008-9 believed that they could ignore the lessons of history, believed that rules were for other people and they could break the rules with impunity. Um, and unfortunately, they were wrong they didn't know their history. I mean, the Chartered Institute of Bankers used to, in the old days, teach banking history as part of its course on general banking. But that sort of fell by the wayside. And uh, bankers came in from outside the industry with no conception of how you actually run a lending book so that it is secure and so that the money is repaid eventually. And...
0: It led to the collapses we all know about. I think greed's got a lot to do with the absence of a f- the recognition of history, if I may say so. But let me ask you a final question in what has been a fascinating discussion. The National Audit Office, I think the popular figure about RBS, for example, is that the taxpayer bailed them out to the tune of $45 billion in the in the crisis of 2008. Well, the National Audit Office says that the total cost to us, the taxpayer, was actually $256 billion. And we had RBS, we had HBOS, you've already mentioned, we had Northern Rock. And we were told they were all too big to fail. Were they? Yes, they were.
1: Um, had the government let those banks fail in those days, there would have been a gigantic fallout in the economy and many, many, many more people would have lost their livelihoods and their savings. What the lesson we have to learn is not to allow banks particularly, but other companies too, to be, become too big to fail, to break them up before they get to that level. So that if there is a crash, the failures are manageable, that they don't all fall on the taxpayer. But I'm afraid that's a lesson that we don't seem to have learned.
0: I would like to ask you, well, okay, fair enough. They were too too big to fail. It seems they were too big to prosecute also. But RBS, for example, the year before last, its profit figures, profit figures were in the billions. And in the year before last, they closed 200 plus local branches across the UK, including 67 across Scotland in rural areas predominantly. So they're making billions and failing to serve local communities. So is there a point at which we can regulate to do something about that sort of thing? Well, you can only regulate if you
1: have the political will to do it. And I'm afraid in Britain today, there is no political will to bring bankers to heel or to enforce what you're talking about a social obligation on banks to smaller communities to smaller towns to rural areas that lose their last bank branch
0: okay all of that perhaps is the subject of another foray into literature coming you agree i think this has been a marvelous discussion i've really enjoyed it it's amazing really what i didn't know yesterday <laughs> in relation to your book I must commend the book, that's The Rise and Fall of the City of Money, A Financial History of Edinburgh, which is currently available via good booksellers and, of course, through Berlin itself, www.berlin.co.uk. It is a fascinating tome, and we are coming up to Christmas, you know, (laughs) so that brings us To the end of this podcast, and thank you for listening. And thanks for the interview, marvelous. Thank you very much, Bob.